Welcome to the Beyond the Bucket Show, a podcast centered around optimizing all lives' buckets. We all have buckets we are balancing, coaching, entrepreneurial ventures, family, passion projects, and health. Let's all take this journey together and become bucket fillers. And here's your host, Chris McSwain. Welcome back to Beyond the Buckets. I appreciate you for joining us today. We've got another fantastic guest, of course. Uh, Dr. Scott Goldman is our guest today, and he is the performance psychologist for the Golden State Warriors. Scott has over 20 years of working with elite teams, coaches, and athletes, including some Olympic gold winners, oh, gold medal winners, professional athletes from all five major leagues in the United States, MVPs from every sport, world record holders, NCAA Final Four basketball teams, including the number one ranked team, national champions, BCS Bowl winners, and just the list goes on and on. He's worked with the Detroit Lions, Miami Dolphins, Washington Wizards, and a bunch of different colleges and universities. So this is a really great episode as we get ready for the NBA playoffs. Um, we've got the Golden State Warriors performance psychologist. So here you go. Enjoy. Hey, 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 hey. I appreciate every one of the listeners and I thank you for tuning in because you could have been anywhere in the world, but you chose to be right here right now on the Beyond the Bucket show. But before we start, I'm going to ask you for a small favor that will go a long way. I would greatly appreciate if you can go to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. After that, maybe send it to one of your friends so they can enjoy it. Uh, this will help me bring on more impactful guests to continually go beyond the buckets, not to mention boost my ego. Uh, this should take no no more than a minute, so go ahead and do that. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Now let's get to the show. Oh, I forgot. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Chris underscore underscore McSwain for a lot of other great content. Now let's get to this. Welcome back to Beyond the Buckets. Thank you for joining us. We've got a great guest today, Scott Goldman. Dr. Scott Goldman, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, after watching that intro, I'm a little bit terrified of what's about to happen next. This thing is lit. Let's oh, do this. Man, that's awesome. Well, uh, Scott, I would love to start off with a fun fact about yourself, something that even if we know who you are, uh, they might be surprised about. <laughs> well, that one takes me off guard. Let's see. Fun fact. Um, I got a chance to go and visit where the cosmonauts trained in the former Soviet Union and met the first man to do a spacewalk in outer space. He was a cosmonaut. That was a pretty cool experience. Really? How'd you get that opportunity? <sighs> Long story, but the short version was... Um, I had an opportunity to study in Moscow. And so I was living in Moscow for a while and getting a chance to kind of do some interacting and interesting things. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, and so you've been, uh, we talked a little bit about on our pre-call, but you've kind of been all over the map and lived in several different places. Uh, why don't you touch on that? Maybe number one, just kind of give an origin story about you and then uh, kind of talk about all the places you've been. Sure. Um, so let's see. Yeah, I've lived in a few different locations. Sometimes I'll jokingly say, you know, uh, as soon as people get to know me, I got to leave. Uh, once they find me out, I got to move to the next place. But I think the reality of it is um, I've just been very fortunate to connect with people who have recruited me to go from one place to another to another. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh I think one of the things that I really like about having lived in all parts of the United States, as well as a few other places in some other countries is you start to see some of the universality of human beings and human behavior, which is what really drew me to the, to the field of psychology. Love it. And so, uh, I told you I wanted to be a sports psychologist when I was in college um, and my undergrad is in psychology. So uh, did you play sports growing up? Was that always something that you were around? You know, for me, sports was the only thing that ignited me at an early age. And in order for me to be able to participate in sports, my mother made sure I had to have good grades. And if I didn't have good grades, then I couldn't play sports. But 
I was just only always ignited by sports. I can go back to when I was a kid. I'd be whatever season it was. If it was football, I would put everything in the living room and and run over with my helmet. If it was baseball, I would take, you know, I'd be taking every pitch. Ken Griffey Jr. was my favorite player. If it was basketball, I would be going in the backyard and doing the Michael Jordan moves. So what was it that uh, kind of prompted you to go into this field specifically with sports? Yeah. So, um, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, I played competitive. I was a soccer player growing up as part of the Olympic developmental program. I was on a nationally ranked high school team. Um, it's interesting because I had my like Rome Gardner moment with soccer where I kind of experienced life without it for a while and recognized and kind of, you know, did some goof around stuff. I didn't get in any real trouble or anything, but you know, just life away from sport. And then I returned to it. Um, actually when I was in graduate school where, uh, I ended up playing for a semi-professional team out in New York and that was a, an amazing experience. So I, I've always had a passion and a love for, for sport and especially for soccer. And then, um, during, uh, my training, uh, you know, I, I went to undergrad in, in, at Tulane University in New Orleans. And I don't know if you've ever been to that city, but it's an amazing city. And it's an amazing city to get to know people from all sorts of different walks of life. So I always tell people that I got an amazing education. Um, really, you know, like if you go to a place like the Maple Leaf Bar uh, in Uptown, Tuesday nights, you get a chance to watch like Rebirth Brass Band for $5 till two o'clock in the morning. Like, the people and the experience, like that's just an amazing education. So when, uh, when my advisor, my academic advisor said, you got to declare a major, uh, he, you know, I, I kind of came back with, well, what's the easiest major to declare given I was enjoying this whole enriched romantic new Orleans experience with the music and the food and everything. And he said, oh, psychology. So I was like, boom, I'm a psychology major from that moment forward. Well, my parents, who are both in the medical field and are unbelievable, I mean, they're, they're, they're incredibly accomplished human beings. I mean, my dad's a, a world-famous nephrologist, and my mom was one of the originators of the Child Life Program, which is a hospital program for children designed for educating children and empowering patient-centered care, really pioneering stuff, both of them amazing human beings. Um they kind of called me out on that. They're like, Oh, so you're a psychology major, huh? And I was like, yeah, I am now. And so what they did was, is they actually pulled some strings in the medical field that gave me an opportunity to start working in psychiatric hospitals at the age of 18. And what I quickly discovered was how um, impactful, meaningful, enriching and rewarding that work is. So it was interesting, right? Because I had always had a passion for sports I sort of bumped into psychology only to then realize how incredible of an experience it is working with people. Right. And, and I think the real common thread between the two for me anyways, was that um, they're both unsolvable puzzles. Like human beings are hard to predict and human behavior is really complicated and sophisticated. I mean, that's why like, you know, we don't know what the stock market's going to do, or we don't know who's going to win the, the ball game and, and sports is the same thing. And so um, I think I was fascinated by both human behavior and sport. And then uh, when I was in grad school, again, I was playing semi-professional. So, so I'm kind of bouncing all over the place and I appreciate you giving me the space. Of course. Um, I originally wanted to be a child psychologist. So I was going to school where I got two PhDs for the price of two PhDs. One was in clinical psychology. The other was in school psychology. And while I was doing that was when I reconnected with my first love of soccer and working with that and sorry, playing for that semi-professional team. And that's when I went, gosh, I wonder if I can combine these two worlds. Right. And so if two PhDs wasn't enough, I ended up going over to the exercise science kinesiology department, taking all sorts of coursework in you know, exercise science, kinesiology, and performance psychology. So that was the combination and the origin there. 
For sure. Uh, lots of different places that we'd like to go, but just on your last topic, the mind and body connection, I think is extremely important for all athletes because you have to have your mind working in a certain direction. The same thing with your body. And you obviously wanted to be extremely well-rounded and, and you basically covered all those bases. So that probably is one of the reasons for your longevity and success in this industry. And a couple of things that you also touched on that were very prevalent to me. One, the reason why I got into psychology was because a lot of the athletes were getting into to psychology because we didn't really know what we wanted to do later on. But we knew we liked people similar to you. We knew, you know, we had great communication skills and, and, and would love to help people in some direction. So I just said, I'm going to be a sports psychologist. And the pivot point that I think you made was finding out how you can actually bring all these things together and really help people because the sports psychology world is very small. It's increasing now. But when I was in college, you know, back in the early two thousands, uh, it, it just wasn't the same. It, it wasn't, it wasn't the same level. And now what you're doing is really getting the notoriety and the credit that it actually deserves because you're helping not only their mental performance, but their performance on the court or the field. And now it's translating into other areas of their life. And I also believe that a lot more people are being more transparent about what's going on in their mind. And, and we'll definitely touch on some of those things about mental health and how people can how, how people can actually become mentally healthier, just like they work on their body. How can they work on their mind to to actually you know produce better things whether it be on the court on the field or in their everyday life so a lot of different things that you touched on which i appreciate and um, just seeing the journey that you've taken just it 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 goes to, it goes to show you that the hard work the energy and the effort that you've put in over these years is now really coming to fruition and uh just for that i want to say hats off to you and and really appreciate the work that you've done to help other people yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, your words mean a lot to me. I'm humbled and honored. Um, so I, I just a heartfelt thank you. I really appreciate your sentiment. Uh, I agree with you. I think there is an incredible opportunity right now for us to educate about what this service is. I think for decades, it's been pretty confusing for a lot of people. You know, is it performance? Is it mental health? What, like, you know, is this about working with coaches? Is it about working with players? And it's sort of like, you know what? I think as we're starting to shine a light on this very important topic, I think we also have a real opportunity here to get a quote unquote right. For sure. So you served as the uh, the director of psychology for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, you're, I guess, close to your hometown, Detroit Lions and uh, Washington Wizards as well. Talk to me about that. And you're currently with the Golden State Warriors. So tell me what your role is within the Golden State Warriors and, and what you've done for these other teams as well. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to this idea of an opportunity to educate. Um, so I'll give you sort of my resume briefly, or try to be brief. I started out at the University of Arizona, where I was an embedded psychologist with their athletic department. So that was 16 sports. I think there was 560 student athletes. And, um, and so it really was about, okay, what are your touch points? And so, you know, the first priority was mental health and wellness. Second priority was performance. And then third priority was really like team and uh, and coaching resource, right? Uh, I also did a lot of stuff in regards to helping the athletic department as a whole identify, you know, best practices as well as um, organizational decision making and system design, uh, including recruiting and everything else. So that was Arizona, and and being one of the first to be embedded like that um, gave me an opportunity to kind of set it up in because there was nothing there prior so I got to sort of set it up and 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 that's one of the things that I've discovered is um as as you pointed out earlier this expansion of the service I find is being forged by really two entities the provider and what their skill set is and the organization and what their needs are and so I think what happened at Arizona was they sort of recognized they needed something, but they were open to allowing it to be whatever we wanted it to be. And I always think about that experience really being incredibly rewarding 
because it was exploratory in nature. So a lot of times I was just going to work, showing up, and then kind of figuring out wherever the fires were to put out or whatever the greatest need was. And, you know, sometimes that was a a student athlete who was feeling suicidal. And sometimes it was about a student athlete saying, Hey, um, I'm trying to win a national championship or a gold medal. I remember there was a player, there was a student athlete there who came into my office and said he had the third fastest time in the world. He had just won an Olympic gold medal four years ago. The Olympics were coming up. He wanted to have the, he wanted to break the record and he wanted to win a gold medal. And he had the third fastest time. And I said, okay, well, what would the, how far are you off from the the world record? And he said about three one hundredth of a second, which is about the length of a sneeze. And that's, that's just a really interesting puzzle and challenge. So um, that's where it started. Then it started to grow. Some of the coaches would say, Hey, can you do some stuff with the team? You know, can we figure out like um, how to identify who our captains are going to be or what are the leadership dynamics or how do we build, you know, a culture and kind of get it right. And then it became, and this is where I started to tap into some of my school psychology training where some of the coaches were starting to ask, well, how can I reach and mentor the student athletes better? Um, so really did some pioneering work at Arizona that ended up getting the NCA recognizing. So I became part of the, the mental health task force that the NCA provided. And, and what, what year was that in when you started at Arizona? Uh, Arizona was 2007. So you were what, what you said you were finishing up college, right? Yeah, I graduated 05, 06. And uh, yeah, so then I was coming out right then. Yeah. And so, and for, for me, I didn't really know, but I, I, I started to still use the psychology. So I was a behavior specialist um, for autistic kids when I first, when I first got out. And then, I did that for about six months and I quickly found out that everybody that is in that profession is an absolute saint. And it just really wasn't for me after that time period. Um, it just, I, I was going to be, I wasn't going to, I was going to do a disservice to the clients that we were trying to help because for my personality, I just wasn't built out for that, which actually worked in, in my benefit. I ended up going into sales and I did that for uh, nine years, but, all during that time, I was still coaching. So because my schedule was flexible, I can kind of create my own hours. I started coaching. Um, and I, then I knew if I wanted to do anything, I would be, I would teach and I would coach. So I got my master's degree in education and, you know, I'm, I'm doing similar things. Like I, uh, one of the, one of our other coaches on our staff, uh, her, she's getting her, she's getting her uh, master's in psychology and, 90% of our stuff is mostly like not on the court. All of our issues are off of the court. The basketball part is easy. Um, that's the 10%, but the 90% is interpersonal relationships, guiding kids through different moments, ups and downs in their careers. So hearing how you started and just trying to figure things out, we we do that on an everyday basis with our team. And uh, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's kind of an art. It's an inexact science. You have no clue what's going to uh what's going to help or you know uh, get somebody through their situation so um i, I definitely uh I, I hear where you're coming from when you started and you're just trying to figure things out and you have no clue if they're going to work or not but it kind of gives you those set points for later on hey this is something we did with one of these athletes and things like that so it's good to hear yeah i mean it's um it, working in a psychiatric hospital or working like you said, with the autism uh, diagnosed individuals, it is hard to leave your your job at the office, so to speak. I, I still think about some of the the patients that I've worked with throughout you know my 25 years of doing this. It it can be very impactful. I agree with you. The people who have chosen that professional path uh, deserve a special place. For sure. Um, so continue continue on with what you were talking about because. Uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too off track there. Sure. Um, so I, uh, and I don't know if you can hear in the background, my dog's barking. So I'm just going to close this door. I don't, I don't know if this is a live thing where you can edit or we'll just roll with this imperfection. But. We, we like to just go, go with the flow here. So you can, 
I don't like to edit that podcast because I just want it to be authentic. You know, I want, I, I want this, it doesn't need to be an elaborate production. When I first started, I would definitely go back and cut certain things and, and just, but it just, it's too cons- time consuming. People want to know the real thing anyway. So having the okay. dog bark, I've had, had our gardeners here uh, all over the microphone. So it's, it's, it's fun. I appreciate your, your, uh, allowing my imperfection. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, while I was at Arizona, a good friend of mine from, from my graduate school days, his name's Jim Bowman. Uh, so Jim Bowman and I started talking about developing a test called the AIQ, which measures sports specific intelligence. So we spent about 15 years really researching and developing. So what we did was we took the concept of sports as an unsolvable puzzle what are the cognitive abilities that you need to help solve that? So we looked at firefighters, police officers, but mostly we looked at uh, different sports, football, basketball, baseball. And we followed the Cattell-Horn Carroll theory of intelligence, again, pulling from that school psychology background. And, uh, and, and we developed this thing called the AIQ, which was really just a passion project for the two of us. Um, I took all of the money that I had in my retirement and I put it towards this thing that did develop it and design it. And we brought it to market in 2012. It's now being used by teams in all five major leagues in the United States, as well as um, a couple of teams in Europe and a couple of teams in Australia. And we've even migrated over to um, fire departments and we're uh, in negotiations right now with a, with a, uh, uh, fighter pilots. A military unit that specializes in training fighter pilots. So that's been an amazing experience. And that'll kind of circle back in my origin story. And, and uh, I, I apologize, my origin story is a little bit long. Um, so uh, I go from Arizona, I was at Arizona for eight years. The University of Michigan saw some of the work I was doing in sports psychology and, you know, leaders and best is in their fight song. So they often want to recruit to build dynamic things. They had some individuals that were working there, uh, Greg Harden and Barb Hansen, who were incredible. And they said, hey, we'd like you to join and really grow this thing to be, you know, one of the best uh, psychology services for student athletes in the nation. So that was a really rewarding experience. Did that for about four years. As the AIQ was starting to become embedded, like it was starting to become embedded in the NFL, um, Adam Gase discovered the AIQ was really enjoying the utility of it and the information it was providing. But it also led to he and I expanding our conversations outside of just the player's intelligence and what they can and, and, and may struggle with on and off the field from like a cognitive processing space. Um, we started to kind of fold into other aspects of the sports psychology and, you know, their personalities. And, and so he asked me to join the Dolphins. So I joined the Miami Dolphins and worked with them for a few years. And then one of his friends got hired by the Detroit Lions, a gentleman named uh, Matt Patricia. And the Detroit Lions and Matt Patricia were dealing with some things and they reached out. It was almost like... Um, a neighbor asking to borrow a cup of sugar. He said, can I borrow your guy? And uh, they're like, sure. So I ended up helping uh, what the lions were dealing with. And at that point they said, Hey, this would be kind of good. Why don't we, why don't we share them? So they went from being like two neighbors borrowing a cup of sugar to almost like two fourth graders going like, let's get a puppy and you can have them Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'll have them Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and every other Sunday. Well, so I was working for two NFL teams at the same time, which was pretty challenging and also really rewarding and enriching as far as a learning experience. And then um, the Golden State Warriors came on board and they started to ask me to do a lot of like front office stuff and draft work. And so I was working for all three teams at the same time, a lot of travel, a lot of investment in time and energy. And then um, as things kind of evolved, I migrated away from the NFL and the Golden State Warriors expanded my role, and that's where I'm putting a lot of my time and energy. And then, as you mentioned earlier, there was a, a period where I was a resource for the Washington Wizards, uh, serving really as a front office consultant during all of that as well. 
great. So now that we have a lay of the land, I'd like to kind of get into it a little bit, the nuts and bolts. What are you actually doing for the Warriors? That's my hometown team. I've always loved the Warriors, even uh, in the heyday of, of Tim Hardaway and Chris Mullen. Um, so it's interesting, you know, to to have your home team be represented by somebody now that, you know, you know, you know. Um, but when you come in there, what are the expectations that the organization places on you? What are you looking for the, from the organization? What do you need to, 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 to make this a successful thing? Because nobody gets into something and doesn't want it to be successful. You want to make sure that, all right, if we're going to bring this person in, they're going to add value and they're going to, multiply what we have going on in our organization because the last the last thing you want is anybody so i think and i got this from somebody else but there's four reasons why people come into your life it's to add subtract multiply or divide and you always want people that are adding to your life or being able to multiply into much more different things and opportunities so how are you able to add and multiply what you do to the organization yeah, you know, what a great way to phrase the question. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. And the reality is, it's a really special group of people. So from from top, from, like, I was about to say from top down, but I don't even want to put anchors. Like, I mean, everybody contributes and everybody provides some really great um, depth and contribution. So, like, Joe Lake of the owner, unbelievable. Best owner I've ever been around. Brilliant talented, invested, smart. I mean, uh, wow. I, I, I couldn't even, like, I, we could spend the rest of this dialogue just talking about how amazing he is. Then you've got uh, his two sons, Kirk and Kent, who are humble, are brilliant, um, invested. They spend, like, they're, they're in the building every day. They're, they're constantly evolved in all things that are going on. Then you've got the team president, Bob Myers. Again, brilliant mind, sees things that other people don't see, um, really has an amazing way of interacting with human beings, unparalleled to anything I've ever seen. You've got Mike Dunleavy as one assistant GM, Larry Harris as another. Again, brilliant. And just top of what they do. That's just the front office, right? Then you've got, and and, and I mentioned those individuals because I think everybody else has a, a larger awareness of of the talent of Steve Kerr and his coaching staff. I think the players, you know, staff, I think just unbelievable human beings. So, you know, to be honest with you, I try, I try not to do much, you know, because they've got a lot of things going on. What I've often been for the Golden State Warriors, as I've seen it is I've tried to be really like a curator of knowledge. I've tried to come in, with experience from all these other different places and leagues and everything else. Oh, here's, here's something that, you know, we can pull from this other team or here's something that can be happening. So that was one element was just to kind of help provide some perspective of what could be done. Because um, I think the identity of the organization, which really comes from leadership ownership is one where we seek Uh, constant knowledge. We seek improvement, we seek insight, and we look for it anywhere we can get it. And so that was, that was one element was to be a curator not. The other was to bring in and be a a psychological resource, you know, so um, bringing in the AIQ was one, doing a lot of the draft uh, interviews was another element to that. So uh, I want to double tap on that. During that draft process is obviously a, it's going to change the franchise one way or the other. If you if you hit like the Warriors have hit on other draft prospects versus a team that does not hit, and there's a fine line. You have no clue other than some of the resources that you're trying to put in. Um, but during that process, what what type of questions are you asking these potential draft picks? Yeah, so um, so I don't burn these questions by making them public. Sure. What I would say is I design questions that do not have a right or wrong answer. They don't have an answer that we're looking for. What I try to do is create questions that hopefully give the player an opportunity to reveal who he is. 
Mm. And then it becomes a collective decision of, do we know this guy well enough that we can decide if he would be a good fit for our organization and our organizational needs? I mean, the draft process is a collective. It is very much a we kind of thing. It's not a one person, certainly not a me thing. I'll be very honest about that. Like I am just a humble servant who's trying to contribute and provide value wherever I can, whenever I can in the area of expertise that I hold, which is psychology. And yeah, I don't want you to give uh, all your recipes, obviously, but have you ever seen any red flags with certain people that have come into that room and you've asked them a question and it's like, "Mm, that wasn't, that wasn't right. Or have you had interviews where you're like, man, that guy gets it. Uh, And then when you look back on it, did you make the right assessment based on how their career aligned? Obviously getting drafted to a place where they have a structure in place like you said, the whole organization is extremely well-rounded. But have you gone into the room and said, "Man, I was wrong with that guy when you know when he came in here. I, I thought he wasn't going to be the type of player that he is, or uh, or vice versa." So, Chris, I think you're providing a great opportunity for a moment of clarity. I uh, it, it takes a certain level of hubris, and I would even go one step further and say arrogance to assume that we could ask a series of questions, whether it's on a piece of paper, like a personality inventory or in an interview style and grasp the entirety of a human being. Like human beings are just way too complicated for that. Right. And especially, you know, with most draft interviews, like in the NFL at the combine, they're 15 minutes at the top 30 visits. There may be 30 to 45 minutes. Same thing like with the NBA uh, at the combine, it's like 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes. And then at the at the uh, pro day on-site visits where we bring them out to the facility, it's maybe you get an hour. So if you I, – I, I just bring it out to everyone that if you think you can understand a human being in a one-hour conversation, that's just arrogant. I just, I just don't think that's possible. So what I often – we'll discuss and dialogue with the teams that I work for. As I say, like, look, one, this is just a peephole size window of the human being. Two, personality is not a stable trait. People change all the time. They'll change before the draft and after the draft when they become millionaires. They'll change when they get married, when they have children. Like, so what we're seeing right now might not be who we get three years from now kind of thing. Similarly, uh, personality can be heavily influenced. Are we asking this person to think of himself as a basketball player when we ask these questions? Are we asking him to think of himself as a son or a brother or a friend? You know, because people will alter their answers based off of what role they are putting their own headspace in. And then there's always the X factor, like, you know what, if a guy gets into a disagreement with his girlfriend the night before, or, you know, some other kind of event, he finds out that his uncle is sick, that's going to influence his answers too. So there's always this kind of element of this is as much art as it is science. With that said, I review all of my interviews. I wait three years and then I review what my notes were. And I, and I try to always try to um, I try to perfect the craft. I go, okay, where did I get it wrong? Where did I get it right? How did I do that and not do that? And again, I go back to, I think the nature of the questions that I like to ask are less about a right or wrong answer and more about an opportunity for them to provide some insight about who they are. And, and so I think what's interesting is, again, personality is not static or stable, But what you can see are certain trends or values that could be pervasive over time. So I'll give you an example of one um, that I think is kind of interesting. For a while now, people have really been valuing mental toughness. We got to get guys that are gritty. We got to be mentally tough, all of that kind of perspective. I think that kind of misses the mark. And the reason why I say that is mental toughness is really good but it's also very dependent on motivation. So 
if we define mental toughness as like, what are you willing to tolerate? What are you willing to deal with? What kind of discomfort and how much uh, intensity of that discomfort can we ratchet up? I think is heavily dependent on motivation. If wow. you ask me to do something for $5, that's uncomfortable. I don't know if I would do it for $5. It's like, <laughs> it's just worth it. $50. Yeah. I consider it $500. Yeah, I'm probably a lot more invest. 5,000? Okay, I'm doing it. If you say it will ensure that my children will never have to worry about anything ever in the rest of their life from a financial standpoint, yeah, I, I think I can tolerate a lot more discomfort for that. So motivation influences. So trying to understand what motivates someone in this moment and what might be pervasive. So for example, Let's say you ask a question like, and again, I don't want to burn too many, but let's say you ask a question like, would you rather have a max contract on a losing team or win a championship but be paid the league minimum? Which would you prefer? And people go, oh, I think what you really want is you want the dude that says league minimum and championship because you want a winner. And yeah, that's a valuable quality. But the reality is if someone were to say a max contract, I'm okay with that. And here's why I would follow up with, okay, why do you want the max contract? And if they say, Oh, I want generational wealth so that my children could go to college and not have to play a sport to get the scholarship. That would be life changing. Cause, and again, a lot of people don't know this. And so I appreciate you giving the forum some student athletes don't get to declare the kind of majors that they want to declare because it's inconsistent with the demands of their sport. I've actually heard a coach once say at the collegiate level, I won't say whether it was Michigan or Arizona to keep some anonymity, where the coach said a player showed up late to practice. And the coach said, where were you? And the player said, sorry, coach, my professor helped me late from class. And the coach said, are you here to play the sport or are you here to go to school? And the player goes, I'm here to play the sport. And the coach is like, you know, that's effing right. Screw that. And it was real clarity. And I've had student athletes also come into my office and say, I want to declare engineering, but my coach is discouraging it because it would be hard for me to, you know, get all the assignments done and go to practice. So if I heard someone say, I want a max contract, I'm not turned off by that. If the follow-up question to that is, I'd like my sons and daughters to be able to attend school and declare whatever major they want. That to me is a person who really gets the sophistication of the system of professional athletics from youth college to pro. Wow. Uh, great way to paint a picture on the full story of people. You talked about many different things. One is how people change and it could be a quick change. It could be a long-term change. It could be uh, because a, a certain life, life event happened. Uh, I was just away for two days um, and I come back and my daughter is getting ready to turn two this weekend. And she's talking in full sentences now. And before that, two days ago, she wasn't, or maybe she was, but just because of my absence, I was now able to actually see the change. And I was just thinking about her grandparents that some of them don't live in the area. What does that feel like to them when they come back after two weeks or so to visit and they haven't seen our daughter in that long? Like how big of a change is that? And uh, one of the things that I think about when you were speaking is if you think about the Warriors, they're not really trying to change anybody. They're not trying to change Draymond of who he is. They're not trying to change Clay. They're not trying to change the integral parts of their parts of their team. And what I found out, and I've been coaching now for just finished my 18th or 19th year at high at the high school level, is early on in my career, I would try to change these kids to to do what we needed them to do. And I thought that was the only way because when we were growing up, that was how coaching was. You're going to do it this way and this is how you're going to do it. Well, these 
kids can still get the job done if you just meet them where they're at instead of always trying to push. And that's basically what I'm, I'm getting from you is, is there's a different perspective if, you know, and this goes back to psychology, but PSJ's theory is you look at it one way, I look at it one way, but if somebody's up here, they can see it in a whole different light and nobody's right or wrong. There's nobody that's incorrect. Everybody's perspective is a valid one and you have to be able to change your perspective based on all the information that is given. Just because on this side of the hill, it looks like, oh, it's nice and clear, but on the other side of the hill, uh, is bad weather. You have no clue because you can't see that other part. And what I really like about what you're talking about is you're trying to see the entire picture and whether that be right or wrong or indifferent, it doesn't really matter, but you need to see that perspective on why they think the way they're thinking and how they're, why they're acting the way they're acting. Um, and so, you know, and, and I, I want to say one more thing. You definitely need to listen to this. I just watched, uh, I listened to another podcast right before we got on. It's with Michael Be- Beasley and he's on the pivot. And it is, I would be very interested after we talk and you listen to that to, 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 to think about what's going on with him. It's on the pivot with um, uh, Fred Taylor and um, uh, the, the old cornerback from the uh, Ryan Clark um, in, in, in Crowder from uh, Miami. He might've been there when you were there actually. But I think you should definitely listen to that because it just, it got my mind thinking about what we are going to talk about too. And just, just the the level of things that have gone on in his life. And that's the reason why he's acting the way he's acting or reacting the way he's reacting. It's just, just amazing. So very good insight to, to how you approach things um, and just be open to finding out the reason why they think that way and meeting them where they are. So really appreciate that insight. Yeah, no, first of all, thank you. I'll check out the Michael Beasley interview. It sounds fascinating. I wrote it down. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is, you know, I see you, Chris. Like, you slip in that Jean Piaget reference <laughs> right in there. Like, woo, we just slipped that in, like, you know, a little bit of butter on the toast, and then you're out. Like, I was like, man, great, great reference. You know, the, the thing that I would kind of highlight, and you made a good point, is it's fascinating, right? Like, there was a time where it was all about, we got to find the player that fits the coach. And then it was, Oh, we got to find the coach that fits the player. And it was always this idea of like the pendulum swings, right. Between the authoritarian coach versus the, um, you know, player friendly coach and all that accountability coach versus the player friendly. They both have their merits. What I, what I've tried to do with the teams that I've worked for is rather than see there being a fixed foundation player and then we match the coach to the player or the opposite, which is coach. And then we fix the player to the coach. I said, you know, first of all, both of these things are not fixed. They're pretty fluid because the one thing we know, the only, the only constant in sport is change. Right. So what I really kind of looked at is I looked at goodness of fit between the two. So for example, um, some players respond really well to an authoritarian coach. They, they, they recognize, and you threw Piaget in there, so let's kind of reference some development theory. They recognize that for some children, they know safety exists by the boundaries that parents establish. So your two-year-old knows you love her because of the things that you tell her she can't do, like run with scissors, <laughs> And so that actually becomes an indirect way of communicating that you care about them. Now, I'm sure with your two-year-old, if she were to pick up scissors, you don't like F-bomb or, you know, mother F or any of that kind of stuff. You probably educate why we don't run with scissors, but you still set a boundary. So it's funny because I think sometimes, especially in today's kind of mindset, you will sometimes vilify an authoritarian styled coach because we just think, oh, they're being mean. But the reality is they're setting boundaries and expectations that can help produce greatness. It also comes with a side effect, like if you're too much of anything mutated, it can work against you. Similarly, a more what we call like player-friendly coach or a more relational coach is one of those things where you go, oh, they get the best out of a player because of that nurturance and that kind of love them up stuff, which is true. However, when mutated, 
it can avoid moments of accountability so that the player who goes, "Mm, I don't really think you care about me because I missed curfew or I blew off practice because I was hungover or any of these other kinds of things. You don't really care about me because you're not helping me hold myself to what's right that we both know to be. So this is probably just a long winded way of me sort of saying like, What I try to do is I try to really understand the organization. I try to understand the coaches, try to understand the locker room. I try to understand the players. And then it's like, okay, if we get to know this prospect, would they be a good fit for us? Hmm. And I've had this conversation with some scouts and GMs a few times where they'll go, well, what if we let this guy go? And the team that drafts him three picks later really pops with him because we know he's so talented. And I go, you know, that's a really interesting point. And my counter to that is what if we know he won't be good for us? So is it better to take a player that we know won't be good for us just so that we don't have to respond to the media saying, why didn't you take this guy when you had the chance to pick him? And it's like, well, if he's not going to be good for us and we got to be comfortable letting him be good for someone else. Wow. Uh, What you really, what you were really saying uh, really resonated with me because as a coach, you kind of go into it and you're, you're, you're basically an actor at first. When you first start coaching, you are going on based on your previous experiences, whether it be playing or, uh, you know, playing for somebody else. So you're mimicking those things. If you had a very hard nosed coach, which I had some very hard nosed coaches early on in my career. Um, I'll tell you this real one quick story, but, um, so we had very hard nosed coaches, like I just mentioned, but when I first started coaching, I tried to, mimic what they were doing and so I really lit into this this kid and I was coaching JV basketball at the time and this kid you know he was he was he was he was a real tall kid real real physical but just didn't know how to use his body and and I just went in on him one day and and my best friend who was my assistant coach he said Chris that's not you that's not how you how you would treat him if you didn't know you know if he wasn't playing basketball and that always stuck with me. But at the same time, you can't be a pushover like you mentioned, but you also you also have to make sure that you're nurturing and doing that. So even to this day, that's one of the hardest parts is holding that accountability, pushing hard enough to where you can get the best out of the player, but also understanding that it's a high school basketball game. And at the end of the day, you want these kids to have a good experience. You know, there's been coaches that have been fantastic and and still that I talk to to this day, but there's also been coaches that I don't even want to talk to because of the way they made me feel in those moments. But um, as you mentioned, it's more the relational piece. How can we work together, even if we may not agree, but finding some sort of common ground where we can actually work together has been, been something that I've, I've been working on and, and has been working. And for, for us, uh, you know, in my tenure at, at Valley Christian high school and uh, yeah, I just think it's a great point. And you can't, like you mentioned, you can't have, you can't be one way or the other too far, too stream, but you have to find a common balance. And that's one thing that uh, I appreciate with uh, your comments. The relationship between a coach and a player, I think, is a really sacred one. And I think it's impactful. Like, you know, sometimes I like to, when I'm interviewing coaches for an organization, I'll ask the coach, like, you know, um, how many weddings have you gone to? How many player weddings have you been invited to? And it's interesting because even the authoritarian coaches that you'd be surprised, oh, no way, they ever be, they get invited to a ton because there's that kind of level of respect and understanding. So I, I, I think, you know, I'm really grateful for who you are and some of the insight that you've shared. Cause I got to imagine you have an impact on a lot of people's lives through sport. Like that's the beauty. And again, maybe there's a little bit of a luxury here because the Golden State Warriors do win a lot and have been winning a lot. So it's we can kind of get to some second and third tier kind of concepts that we're talking about here, which is like, isn't it neat that um, we can use sport in a way to heal? We can use sport in a way to 
mature. We can use sport in a way to mend. Um, like I remember in, in Detroit, we did not win a lot. But one thing that didn't get a lot of media, and I think it's unfortunate because it would have been really great, was Coach Patricia. After the George Floyd murder, and, and I'll use the word murder because I think that's an accurate description. Um, after the George Floyd murder, Coach Patricia said, you know what? We're no longer going to talk about football. And someone on his staff said, that's going to cost us games in the fall. Because remember, the George Floyd murder happened in the spring. So we didn't have games to play or prepare for, but we did have to get installs. And so for people who don't know in the NFL, about 60% of your playbook is kind of downloaded in the spring. And Coach Patricia suspended that because he said, this is just more important. And what was an amazing opportunity was as staff, as coaches, and as players, we met. We talked as, as in big groups. We also talked in small groups. We talked in position rooms. We cross-pollinated a, across the team and the organization. And we just talked. We talked about human experience in that moment and what we were all feeling and what we could do to try to make the world a better place. And I would put it at the top of the list of powerful emotional experiences in my professional life. It was really, um, it was some amazing work by all individuals who participated in the experience. For sure. For sure. And I remember back to that time as well, obviously um, just, it's a, it's a sad, sad thing that happened. Um, and nobody wished that it would ever happen, but I do think, that because that happened, there was a lot of conversations that were had that weren't that weren't happening. I know in, in my specific uh, family, you know, uh, I'm in a interracial relationship, and and we never talked about that. And that was a great time period for us to to really sit down as a family and chat. That was the first time we had real conversations with our team. How were they feeling? A lot of African American kids through our that have come through our school for a number of years. They felt that their voices weren't being heard and things like that. And this was a time for administration to listen, people to be there. And I, I hope that we don't lose those conversations as we start getting back more to what normal looks like. And I and I'm grateful that we've had that opportunity to have these conversations. And you just can't you can't forget about having these vulnerable discussions because I do believe that it brings you closer as a team when you guys can sit around and, and chat with an open forum and, and feel uh, comfortable enough to share deep and deep and dark and sometimes hurtful things that have happened to you um, based on your family upbringing or, or discrimination or anything. Um, and every walk of life has it. So just to f hear those perspectives and, uh, and it's, there's a score to the game while you were talking about the Lions, and there's a, a score of the game in life. Uh, and I'd rather win in life than just the sport that we have. And so for Coach Patricia to do that, I think all of those those men and women in that organization understand. They may not have won. Obviously, he didn't keep his job. But they respect that man for, for what he stood for and what he, what he stood on. Um, for that. And there's a lot of people out there and, and winning isn't the end all be all. And, and the longer I do it, the more, I, the more it, I feel good about the wins. I feel really bad about the losses. You know, the, the, we went 21 and eight this year. And I think about the losses more than I think about the fun times we had, you know, and, and for me, that's not what it's all about anymore. Yes. We're, I'm trying to kick everybody's butt when we play, but at the end of the day, we want these kids to have a good experience in the program first and foremost, and well, not, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to add, I think a really interesting philosophical debate is kind of like, well, which comes first? Sort of that, that love, bond, and brotherhood experience or winning? Because I don't think it's one directional, you know? The other thing that I would point out, and, and I'm a big believer in um, – empirically validated best practice, right? Mm. So when Coach Patricia was talking about, hey, what's going on here in, in, in this dialogue that we're having, I referenced a, a study that happened a few years ago that I always thought was really interesting. 
So they did a, a political poll. So when the talk was about building the wall, you know, between uh, the United States and Mexico, uh, they did a study where they asked, you know, are you in favor of it? And they were tracking that. And what was interesting was they thought the people who did the study, they hypothesized that the closer you are to the border, the more for the wall you would be. But it turned out that just the opposite happened, that the closer you were to the border, the more against the wall. So the further you were from the border, like we're talking closer to like Montana and you know North Dakota, like the further you were from the Mexican uh, United States border, the more you were in favor of it. And so they followed up on the research and what they found was the reason they thought people closer to the border was against the wall was because of the relationships that they had with people who were either, you know, immigrants themselves, Mexicans currently, or first or second generation thereof. And so there was a humanity that transferred from that relationship and exposure that just was happening less and less as you move further away from the border. So why do I bring that up? Bill Parcells has this great quote about how the locker room is the ultimate chemistry experiments, like the ultimate lab, right? I've always found like, to me, the locker room doesn't lie. And so one of the gifts that sports has done unintentionally is created people from all different walks of life. Like the beauty of sport for me is um, the sport and winning. They don't care how much money you have when you grew up. They don't care what your color, your skin is, your race, your religion. Like if you can help the team, you know, if you can help the boat row faster, you're in. And so I think what was really cool processing that experience with coach Patricia was bringing that research up and reminding, Hey, this is an opportunity where individuals from different parts of the world can talk and interact. I think there's an opportunity where we can really do something special. And when the other staff members said, yeah, but it's going to cost us games. I said, that might be true. And that's ultimately a head coach's decision but there's an invaluable um, opportunity here as well. And I give coach Patricia a tremendous amount of credit for the, for the path that he chose in that moment. Beautiful. Uh, as we wrap it up, uh, you've been an author or co-author to a couple of books. Is there anything that you would like to plug uh, that you got going on or social media or anything like that? You know, um, I, I'm becoming more and more comfortable doing interviews just because I think this is an opportunity to educate about the field. Like we talked about just bringing the conversation full circle. Like there's an opportunity to talk about um, what the field could look like and what the service could be. With that said, um, one of my mentors gave me this tagline that I've always held. He said, you know what, Scott, it's very easy to see where the cameras are pointed. If you want to stand in front of the camera or like, if you want to be on TV, you know, just stand by the coach on the sidelines, all that kind of stuff. But if you want to be a humble service member of the organization, then you just have to know which way the cameras are pointed and choose where to stand. So I've always preferred to stand behind the camera, not in front of it, which is a long winded way of saying like, I'm not really joining this podcast to promote any book or anything like you know what? I don't even have a website for my site. Yes. The AIQ, there's a website for that athleticintel.com. If someone's interested in using that, um, that service, cause it's a great development tool, but the reality is like, I, I just joined the conversation to join the conversation, but I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I, I love that about you. And just a, a humble spirit and a humble nature. You're going to help a lot of people with this because I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for hours uh, selfishly because there's a lot of areas that I want to like, you, you have a, a wealth of knowledge that is um, unprecedented in this field. And so for somebody that is in that field in multiple different ways, it's, I think it's important for people to listen to it. And a lot of coaches, coaches listen to this, but there is even parenting advice uh, about, you know, just holding them accountable and them showing that love because, you know, my son and my daughter, they freak out if I don't give them fruit snacks. But uh, to, to hear you say that 
that means we love them and they, they uh, internalize that even if they're in their panic mode makes me uh, makes me feel good. Um, so that's great. Um, if anybody wanted to reach out and they had more questions, where would they do that? Um, uh, yeah, it's a good, I, I, I'd probably just, you can just have my email address. It's just uh, goldman at athleticintel.com. And got it. Welcome to email me if they want to kind of follow up on this conversation. Sounds good. And a final question for you. If there's anybody that should be on this show, who would it be? And before you give me your answer, you have to try to make the connection for us. Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but my, my nine-year-old son is trying to get on the show. I see him. I see him. I'd probably give him a shout out of what, what it's like to be the son of a guy who does this for a living. And maybe that would be a good interview. You know, um, I, I think even to kind of put this on a more serious note, like the choices that you make as a coach or that I've made as a psychologist, especially in this world, like unbelievable opportunity and experiences, but make no mistake. It's a sacrifice on us because of the things that we give up. Like I've missed some Halloweens, for example. It's also the sacrifices that our, our, our wives, husbands and children have also um, given up for us to have these opportunities to be, um, cause again, every time that like, say if I'm with a team at the NBA combine, that's a week that I'm not at home. So, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll choose, uh, my nine-year-old son as the next person you can interview. If you want to really get the, get what it's like to live in this world for real. Definitely. Well, thank you, Scott, for, uh, for everything. Um, a very good podcast. Cool. It was an honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the conversations and the opportunity to talk. Definitely. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Buckets podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share the show with your friends. And until next time, take care.